developmental optometrist, award-winning author, and international speaker, Dr. Lynn Hellerstein holds powerful and inspiring conversations with her guests on Vision Beyond Sight in areas of healthcare, wellness, education, sports, and psychology. They share their inspirational stories of healing and life transformation through their vision expansion. Billions of people have vision problems, and vision is more than 2020. Vision Beyond Sight will help you see with clarity and gain courage and confidence. Your vision does not define you, you define your vision. With Dr. Lin's new way to look at your life through a new lens, you will be ready to meet yourself and receive visualizations for miracles to come. Welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Lynn, and welcome to Vision Beyond Sight. Today, visiting with us is my friend and colleague, Roxanne Bradley. Roxanne is truly an amazing person, as you'll quickly see her power, passion, success, dedication, and influencing abilities. Today, we're going to focus on two main topics. Number one, the educational support, either through a 504 plan or an IEP. And number two, what can schools do to support a child's vision issues? And you're going to see Roxanne's had some very personal uh, in-depth experience on the, um, especially in the vision area, which is how I really got to know her years ago. But let's first talk a little bit about Roxanne, as she's a very impressive and adventurous woman here. Roxanne is a special education advocate. Her passion is to help parents support their children who have special needs by helping them get the educational support their children need to be successful learners. Roxanne taught sixth and eighth grade math in a country school in Texas for three years after graduation from college. She then went back to college and got a master's degree in industrial and systems engineering with an emphasis in human factors engineering. This degree is a combination of psychology and engineering. Interesting. In 1993, she and her husband, Foster adopted her daughter from Santa Clara County and came to live, uh, this daughter then came to live with them. They adopted her in 1997. Then they adopted a son, who came to live with them in 1998 and adopted them officially in 1999. In 1998, it became clear that their son and daughter had reactive attachment disorder, PTSD, and other mental health issues. This is what started her journey of being a stay-at-home mom for 11 years, learning about special education laws and supports and advocating for her son and daughter. She applies her skills as a teacher, engineer, experienced mom, and trained advocate to help the family she served. And it's in this capacity that I met Roxanne many, many years ago when her children were young and had some vision issues. But boy, did she teach me about the system, the school system, and what kids need and how to, how to get that for yourself. So welcome, Roxanne, to Vision Beyond Sight. Hi, Dr. Hallerstein, and thank you so much for inviting me to be on your show. 
it is more than a pleasure. Uh, we've been together for how many years have we, you know, seen each other and had kids and since and, 2001, I think. Wow, that's really great. 21 years. <laughs> that's so great. Well, let's get started with the basics. Explain to our listeners what is a special education advocate and what do you really do? So a special education advocate is a person who helps you through navigate the educational system to get the supports that your child needs to be a successful learner. And we all do it a little bit differently um, in terms of how we approach that. But um, in my business, that means that I help you communicate with the schools. I help you know who to communicate. And I also go to all your meetings with you and prepare you ahead of time for those meetings. That's great. So, so explain why parents might need an advocate such as you. What's happening to a kiddo in school that they're maybe not receiving what they need? And, and explain, you can use your own kids or any of the uh, you know, people that you've worked with, what's missing out of their educational program and what have you had to do for them? Right. Sometimes it's a matter of being able to communicate that the parents don't understand the system. So they try to get things for their child, but they don't really understand how to communicate in educational speak, as I call it. They come from a parent speak perspective. And sometimes it's a communication gap. So um, they come to me because they're saying, I can't get my, my child's needs met. And so then it's a matter of me understanding their child's needs and then communicating that to the school. And what are some of the needs that uh, you've worked with some of your parents on? Oh, gosh, some of the needs I've had. Um, let's see, I've had kids with um, behavior issues and they've been in what's called an effective needs program. And yet their behaviors are not improving. So the question is, what's causing that to happen? And sometimes um, my history with my kids um, helps. My, um, both my kids had reactive attachment disorder, so I learned a lot about behavior and what can cause behaviors. And so sometimes it can be as simple as, I've had a child that had Down syndrome and she would hide under the desk and, so, and try not to do any work. So what we put in place there was making sure that they were providing her the right supports so that she wasn't hiding under the table and that she would participate in the education. Sometimes that's as simple as knowing the right words to say, knowing the right protocols to put in place, um, knowing that at the district there are a lot of times at the district level, there are BCBAs who can come in and do an analysis and a um, what's called a functional behavior analysis and help determine what supports that child needs in the educational environment. So some of those things parents don't know that is there to ask for, and they don't know. Um, it's kind of all about not, not knowing what you don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. Are the schools open and accepting of you coming in to help that parent or are they really offensive, offended and defensive? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it used to be more defensive than it is now. There's um, more understanding of advocates. I would also say that 
depending on their history with advocates. Um, as I've been told, I haven't experienced it myself, but I've been told that there are advocates who are quite confrontational or they've come from another state where they're quite confrontational in that state. Um, and then they meet me and I'm quite collaborative and I work with the school. And because I was a teacher, I understand the burdens that they have. I also understand from a parent perspective, the burdens they have. So how do we come at this from a collaborative effort to meet the child's needs without overburdening either party? Which is one a wonderful approach because I do know some advocates and they've really gotten and they needed to be very assertive because the schools were giving them what they needed. But I always had questions. What if you just really have the conversation? And, and I know some schools are grateful for somebody like you with your experience to come in and, uh, you know, explain and give them some ideas because some of these kiddos are tough, especially behavior kids and, and they welcome. Right. And sometimes it is all about offering new ideas. Um, Sometimes it's about understanding trauma. I've taken, my kids both had trauma, but I've also taken trauma classes. So I can offer them some ideas. So like, for instance, they tend to think that providing water and snacks is supporting the behavior when in actuality, what they may need is water and snacks because kids who are traumatized go through water faster and kids and food calories. And if you are thirsty, you've lost 10% of your brain power. So you want to make sure that the first thing you do is offer water and snacks to a kid that's um, recovering from being out of control. That's so interesting. Um, when should a parent consider hiring an advocate and are advocates available through the school system? Ah, good question. In Colorado, they are not available through the school system. Um, there are quite a few private advocates in the Denver metro area, and um, most of us can now, because of COVID, there's a positive to that. Um, all the schools learned how to use virtual, and so we can even work for clients who are farther away. So like I've had clients in Fort Collins and um, Loveland, and I'm in Lakewood, so I can, I can work with those clients without having to drive all those miles. Which is really great. Um, yes, it's, it's awesome. And I can also have back-to-back -back meetings, which I used to drive from like Castle Rock to East Aurora in a day. And gotcha. that was all I could do, right? But now I can, you know, attend more meetings. Um, so it really benefits everybody. And then when do they need an advocate? I actually think that they really, um, people who are just getting their child on an initial IEP at least need to find a place to take a class. And I do offer some classes um, and, um, and I also offer meetups so they can also get information through that. The, the hardest part to go through is sometimes that initial evaluation. Getting, it, getting your child evaluated can be a tough step. So if you're not having luck with that, that's a good time to get an advocate. They can help you through that process. If you're, don't understand because you're getting your first psychoeducational evaluation done. A lot of times the information goes straight over your head and because it's a lot of data about your, your child. So um, getting an advocate to help explain that is also a really good thought. And if most of the advocates that I know 
our job is to try to train the parents as we go so that they don't need an advocate for the rest of the kids. Career. Right. Which is great. Now, do you do any of the evaluation yourself? No, I do not. Okay. That needs to be a, a, a psychologist. Great. Typically a PhD or um, a school psychologist, um, educational advocate, but if it's private, then it would be a PhD psychologist. If it's in the school, it can be a, they have different people do the evaluations. And if you do it privately, that makes any sense, but um, it's a complicated process. Um, And for the benefit of your listeners, that the, um, if you have a concern that your child needs help at school, you want to ask for a comprehensive evaluation through the school. And they will probably set that up. It may take a while. And if you need help with that, you can always reach out to me and I can give you some words to say. Um, And then the other thing is that if it's not a good evaluation or you don't agree with it, there is something called the independent educational evaluation, which then the school has to pay for a private evaluator to do it. Um, So you always want to start with the school for financial reasons. Surely. And we'll get back to that in just a second. Um, What benefits have you seen, uh, specific benefits, uh, in some of the children from uh, the parents hiring their advocates? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I've had one of the first cases I had, I had a child who was on truancy, was being seen by the truancy committee because he couldn't get to school. And so I came in and said, well, have you done any evaluation? What, what reasons, what's, why isn't he going to school? So the parents are telling me that he has a lot of, he just won't get out of bed. He's totally exhausted all the time. And they were seeing a nutritionist and it turned, and I said, well, he may also have some other issues that we don't know about. And if you haven't tested him, if you go to truancy court, that's like the first thing that gets tested. So we got them to do some testing. He also found out he was allergic to the world. So we made sure the cafeteria put in um, allergy supports for him. And he went from not going to school to going to school, but also straight A's. So, wow. Um, what a great, great story that is. Yeah. And, and that's, that's the miracles that you experience every day. Um, and I know when you talked about interpreting testing, first, is there even testing and appropriate testing? Right. But what I love about your work is it's not just about the testing. You're looking at um, the general health, nutrition, allergies, vision. We'll get into that later in the podcast. But there's so many other things that even if they're tested, the score doesn't, you're not the score. The kid's not the score. The kid they're is not, not the, the score. So that's, that's a really good point. The kid is not the score. I try to look at everything involved. So for instance, if you have a child with ADHD, so um, let's, here's another case, child with behavior issues, parents invited me in to help with them um, because I wanted to make sure he got the right supports. And I looked at his evaluation and the kid was gifted. And I said, he, we need, he needs to be evaluated to be gifted. So they talked, reached out to the school. The school said, yeah, we're going to have him evaluated. So 
This year they got him evaluated for gifted. He's now in the gifted program. He's going to gifted classes. His behavior is improving because we're putting the right supports in place because we know he's gifted. Because he has ADHD, he has um, slow processing speed. So his writing is an issue. So we put in the supports for that and he is starting to, to blossom. That's another great example, actually, of many of the patients I end up seeing where sometimes the parents know and, and the child's been identified as gifted, but a lot of times not. And that, you know, the typical scenario is there's several other siblings are all gifted. Then they have this one kiddo. Oh, no, he's not gifted. He's learning disabled. Right. And when we do our testing, if we take away the time pressures and the handwriting, the testing scores are often off the chart, so high above level, but right. because of these other learning problems, and those are the ones you and I have worked with over the years, and I'll often predict, I'm not the psychologist, I don't do the, the IQ testing, but I'll say, I really believe he's showing signs of giftedness. We're not going to test yet because we need to resolve a lot of these issues he's having and then let's get tested. And so often it's great because I've been in practice over 40 years. You know, they're, these patients are bringing their kids and talking about, you know, the time that somebody finally believed in them and saw their gifts. Right. And, and it's really amazing that a lot of those kids are behavior problems. Yes. That's how because they present. they're bored out of their gourd. They aren't getting the right supports they need because nobody realizes how smart they are. And so they think that they're just willfully defiant. You know, I love what you said. I'm gonna use that mantra, bored out of your gourd. <laughs> so, so typifies me the gifted kids. It's really great. It's really great. Well, let's get back to a little bit more on the advocacy. Um, can you explain the difference between an advocate and an attorney and when a parent would need one and or both of those? Yes, that's a very good question. Um, attorneys, of course, are trained in the law. Like, you know, that's what they live and breathe. And advocates are have a layman's understanding of the law. We are not attorneys. We do not practice law. Fact, we could get in trouble for practicing law, right? Um, so we don't want to go there. We do have to know the laws so that we can say, well, I don't think that's an appropriate response because of X, Y, and Z. Um, but we cannot say definitely this is the way it works, right? Right. Um, and attorneys tend to take, not all attorneys, thank heavens, but attorneys in general are trained to take a confrontational view they're hired to come in and fight with the school. So they look at cases very differently than advocates, at least than I do, I can say, than most advocates who come in and wanna work with the school to get the child's needs met without having to be confrontational in a legal perspective. Does that make sense? Totally. So totally. It's, it's a very different, um, I've had the fortune of working with my, the attorneys we hired for my kid, for my daughter, and also other attorneys um, who have had, who I have passed the case on to, um, or I've gotten their advice as whether I should pass the case on to them. Um, and it's very interesting when they talk to me because they're like, oh, I would never have thought of that because I come at it from, you aren't giving them what they want. I wanna make you give them that. Um, 
But then I benefit from talking to them because they're like, well, this law and this, we have this case law and this and blah, blah, blah. That might be a good case or you're never going to win that case. So um, that's the biggest difference I see is the way we approach the case. And I agree. And, and most of my personal experience, most of the time, a good advocate could resolve the issues. But I have had a few patients, especially with kids on the autism spectrum who are not getting the significant support they need, uh, or an attorney has had to really get them into a different school or, right. or program. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes it's needed to, I mean, one of the things that having an attorney does is it takes you to the top of the queue in the district's mind. So yeah, you get a letter and everybody starts sitting up a little taller when right. that happens. Right. right. Because you've got power behind you. Right. Yeah, that's um, right. And then I can say in my case, um, when we, we sued Jefferson County under IDEA, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and we had to have an attorney because they were outright refusing to support my daughter mm-hmm. in any way, form or fashion, even having an IEP meeting because she was in a hospital in another state. Wow. So when you get that kind of situation and they refuse to even talk to you, you have no other alternative but to get an attorney involved. That's correct. And you have people you work with uh, if resources or references are needed. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. That's great. Great. So let's explain the difference now, because many of the patients that I see they'll come in with their testing, either from the school or a private psychologist. And some are recommended 504 plans, some are IEPs, and many of them, quote, don't qualify, quote, for services. And they still have lots of issues, but they don't fit into the mold and therefore can't be called anything to be given services. So explain the difference between a 504 plan and what it provides and an IEP. Yes. A 504 is, first of all, they're under two different laws. So the 504 is under the disabilities law and the IDEA or IEP is under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. So two different ways to escalate. That's that's one of the biggest differences. The other difference is with a 504, the way the law was updated in 2008, it's a little bit more nebulous than it used to be, but basically under the 504, you get accommodations, which means anything that a general education teacher can provide. So that might be time on tests, um, a quiet environment to take a test, um, sitting close to the board, those kind of things. An IEP, you get accommodations, you also get specified and specialized instruction. And that's typically from a, um, a, an IEP, uh, sorry, a special education teacher or from related services. So the school psychologist, uh, speech and language, those kind of things. And then you have goals you have to meet, uh, goals that are put in place that they're supposed to be working on. So there's more accountability in the IEP. The other big difference, and with the 504, you can get services, just typically schools don't. And the reason they don't is because with the IDEA and the IEP, the schools get money, and with the 504, they don't. So there's different incentives and a lot of difference in what a child 
could yes. receive, right? Yes, yes. Uh-huh. So if a child needs specialized services to be able to do something. So let's say a child has dyslexia. You see a lot of children with dyslexia right. and the school, they have to get specialized education in how to read or spelling, how to write. And so that would fall under the IEP and the IDEA. But only maybe they just have vision problems. They may just have to sit close to the board or get large print. Those could be accommodations, which could be under a 504. Right. Well, my experience, and I'm glad you brought up the dyslexia, is there are a number of kids in the school systems. Most schools don't identify dyslexia. And so that's often identified in psycho uh, psychologist offices. But whether or not they're they have that label, they don't automatically get any services if they're not reading enough below level. Is that correct? They have to be a certain amount below grade level. That is correct, except <laughs> except if they're twice exceptional. Okay. Um, so if you've got a kid that's really smart and they should be reading because it's based on their ability, not a peer ability. So let's say they're in the eighth grade and they should be, but they're twice exceptional and their potential is to be reading at the 10th grade level and they're reading maybe at the seventh grade level, then it's like, that's a huge discrepancy between where they should be because of their IQ. And that is when you need an advocate to help point that out because, because most teachers and educators would say, Hey, they're not behind or they're not low enough. But again, when you look at that twice exceptional being gifted with some learning disparity, um, those are kids in great need that I see very often aren't not getting the services that they need to because, you know, they can compensate really well and get by, but struggle because they're nowhere, they're, they're not performing anywhere close to their real potential. Right. And that's what you're supposed to look at now with. Um, one of the new case laws, which is Andrew F. versus Douglas County, the Supreme Court ruled that you have to look at potential and they should be working towards their potential. Wow, that's a great point. I didn't, because so I don't see a lot of schools identifying kids as twice exceptional either. I mean, they're gifted <laughs> or if they're not quite gifted, you know, by the scores, they don't necessarily acknowledge the disparity pulling them down and therefore they don't qualify. What do you right. see? Right. And that's one of the things that they do have now. They are starting, but it has to really come from the parents who push, but they can do instead of them, because a lot of kids who are twice exceptional don't do well on the COGAT. And the COGAT is what all the students in Colorado are given in the second grade to see if they qualify for being gifted. Um, A lot of kids just don't do well on that one. Um, So what they will do sometimes is um, they can do what's called a body of evidence to determine whether a child is gifted. Oh, thank you. Yes, they can look at other tests. They can look at a WISC. Um, That's one of the best tests to give is the WISC, um, which is a Wexler intelligence, whatever. But that's, (laughs) I always forget what the initials mean because we always call it the WISC. But it's um, one of the top standards to give is the WISC. They will look at that. They will look at um, behave um, product. 
So you can have a child with autism who is amazing at reading and you can be gifted in reading. You don't have to be gifted in everything. Um, so that's one of the things that they're getting better at is looking at looking at body of evidence. In order to do that, though, you have to contact gifted person at the school to see if they will do it. And if they won't call the district. So there's a, a pecking order on getting those things done in schools. Well, that is great. And thank you for those insights. That's that's new information for me, for sure. Uh, we're going to take just a quick break. We're here with Roxanne Bradley. Uh, her website is learningdifferencesworld.com. Check her out. And we'll get back. We're going to talk uh, after the break more about some of the vision issues that you've run into and, and how schools can help uh, support and resolve some of those issues. Perfect. Great. Can your child see, really see, more than 2020? Does your child struggle in school, have trouble with tracking when reading, or resist writing? Dr. Lynn Hellerstein's award-winning book, See It, Say It, Do It, provides parents and teachers with specific tools and strategies in visualization and processing. Improve and empower your child's learning and performance in school, sports, and play. Get See It, Say It, Do It on Amazon or visit lynnhellerstein.com. Welcome back. This is Dr. Lynn, Vision Beyond Sight, and we're with Roxanne Bradley, who uh, I'll give you her website, learningdifferencesworld.com, and you should really check it out. Lots of great information on it, especially um, I have a one-page handout called 10 Questions to Ask a Special Education Advocate. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes or link to that, but also check it out on her website. And boy, this is rich, full of all the, the terms and the languaging to really help parents ask the kinds of questions they need to when uh, you know they have a kiddo who's in trouble and they're trying to find what they need to do and what resources are available. So thanks for that great uh, handout, Roxanne. Sure, no problem. Great. So let's continue on. We've been talking about uh, advocates and 504 plans, IEPs. Let's talk about, and this is where you and I connected so much. So, so often you find kids with either undiagnosed or untreated vision problems that may greatly affect their learning. So talk about your experience on, on the vision piece of that. And then, you know, how the schools look at that. Okay. Well, personally, when I, um, my kids, I was actually had a daughter who was going, my daughter was going to a tutor and the tutor said, I think that she has vision issues. You need to go see Hellerstein and Brenner. So I said, okay. So off we went, um, to see, um, Dr. Hellerstein and she did an evaluation and she said, oh yeah, her eyes don't work together. And, and I don't know all the technical terms. That's Dr. Hellerstein's job, but basically her eyes didn't work together. She couldn't focus well. And so we started eye therapy and it really helped her a great deal. Her reading went up, um, her focus went up and she just enjoyed reading a lot more and she still enjoys reading and she's 30 now. 
Isn't that great? How old was she at the time? Oh gosh, she was eight or nine. Yeah, that's that's there. great. Yeah. yeah. And what is she doing? Is she in college? Where is she at? Um, she now? right now, that's a whole nother story. Um, but she is right now in a host home. Mm-hmm. And so she was later diagnosed with um, autism. And so she is in a host home. Wow. So I think that that points to the need for continual advocacy through a child's life that yes. what yes. presents as a little kiddo and the learning needs and what develops in behavior and right. emotional. This is a life process, isn't it? Right. And then my son, same thing. We, did, we realized probably that he probably needed some eye therapy also. So we got him signed up with Dr. Hellerstein and he went through the the program and he actually went up. He was having difficulty reading. He was in a reading program at school. He wasn't on an IEP, but he was in a reading intervention program and um, he did better, but we took him to Dr. Hellerstein. He had tracking issues. He had focus issues and he went up two grades in reading. That's always cool, isn't it? Yes. And we found out later that he is twice exceptional. He is brilliant. Um, so for those of you that know testing scores, he was in the 99th percentile in verbal comprehension and the 0.5 percentile in processing speed. And how would processing speed, what does that score represent in function? That basically represents how fast you can get information out of your brain into your hand to write. That's one of the major things that it interferes with. It also tends to slow down some of your thinking, but most of it's visual motor. So it's how fast you can write. So of course his writing was not great, but we worked on that and he went into the army. He also has ADHD. Um, So he went into the army, He, he, he spent four years, became a medic, and now he's working on starting his own company. So. Isn't that yes. exciting? Yes, yes. Isn't that and great? He is an interesting individual and um, and wonderful. And so is my daughter. She's wonderful also with all her sports. But I do have kids. I will say that you you have kids who are um, trauma in youth or adopted, and they've been traumatized. And so you didn't get them as a baby. They were you know you got them older. They probably have eye issues. I uh, vision processing issues because they don't get that early interaction with their parents, especially if they were neglected. They don't get that early interaction where the kid focuses on the parent's face. So that's a great point to bring up. Uh, And just for the parents, you know, the uh, vision is our dominant sense for learning and more the brain is occupied by processing vision than all the other senses. And so it's always been interesting, and, and you got this right away, uh, Roxanne, that when you have a kiddo in trouble, you know, they're looking at it, the ears and the learning and some of the physical things. But other than just doing the 2020 eye chart in schools, that's sometimes all that's being evaluated for vision. And, and it still is, unfortunately. You will have some um, OTs who have been gotten some of that vision. And so they'll do some vision tests, but then they go, well, I don't have any way to support them. (laughs) It's like, well, great. That doesn't help us much. Um, So then I say, well, you got to go to Hellerstein Brenner Um, or if they're somewhere not convenient, they'll go to another 
another facility, but um, but they are few and far between, um, unfortunately. So that that's one thing I, I always look for because of my kids. Um, the other thing you can look for, as I'm, it's all on Dr. Hillerstein's website, but things about, you know, um, do they get lost in reading? Do they not know where they are? And so when I have schools do evaluations and it comes up that they're very behind in reading or even partly behind in reading according to their potential, then my question is, and they say, yep, they qualify for reading, um, a special learning, a learning disability in reading. I'm saying, well, what is it? Because whatever it is, you have to approach it differently. So is it dyslexia? Is it, is it you know, processing? Is it, what is it? And I try to get them to delineate what it is because the trying of support they need differs depending upon what the issue is. Right. So how does a school support those kids that you suspect have vision problems? And when we say vision problems, uh, it's not just going to the eye doctor and getting a routine eye exam. That's a piece of it. But visual processing is really looking at the whole eye, mind, brain connection. So when you suspect that, does the school do evaluation and visual processing? Uh, Will they pay for That's a really good question. And I will tell you that um, I haven't had it happen yet, but I'm working on it (laughs) to get the school district to pay for evaluations through you as well or your equivalent or um, Able Kids Foundation for auditory processing. Right. So Um, wish us luck because a lot of times they just, they just don't have the tools to do those, those things. And if they do have the tools, because sometimes if they have a really good, like a whisk and a full psych eval, there'll be signs and symptoms. In fact, you know, we get a lot of referrals from those psychologists because they've picked up visual processing concerns. But then the next question is, and then what do they do about it? Right. You know, what do they do about slow processing speed? Right. And so one of the things we do, um, again, it depends on how the slow processing speed is impacting them. So if it's somebody who is a slow thinker that they write fine, which is what I see sometimes, they're very slow in thinking then it doesn't mean they don't have the right answer. I had a guy with all but three, I think he had three PhDs. Um, two of them were all but dissertation, but basically he had gotten three PhDs, but nobody thought he was very good because he was very slow in thinking. So if I wanted him to answer a question, I would give it to him on Monday. And then we have a meeting on Friday and he would always have an amazing answer. So I got him to start telling his teams that he would get back to them. And then when he started doing that, they started recognizing how brilliant he was. So a lot of it is, you know, what is the issue? So if it's processing speed where they're slow thinker, how much processing time do they need? And I have that spelled out in the accommodations. You know, do they need 15 seconds after they ask a question or two minutes? Um, And that's really hard for teachers to do. So it's very good to spell it out. And then if it's um, visual processing writing, especially if they're really smart kids, I get them on um, speech to text as soon as I can. Right. Or typing. But a lot of kids who have that don't type as well. So speech to text is 
getting so much better that that's one of the best ways. I had this little kid who was in kindergarten. He would dictate books to his parents, but he was misbehaving and getting kicked out of school. Right. So once we got him recognized and got him the right supports and they didn't make him right all the time, he just started blossoming in school. He's not in seventh grade or going into seventh grade next year. And he's doing really well. So it's getting those right supports in place. Yeah. Isn't that so great technology? I mean, we could really discuss pros and cons, but especially right. for writing has saved the lives of many of these really bright kids. Uh, one of the issues I find with speech to text is many of these kids are not very good editors. They have tracking problems. So, you know, some they need another system once they get it out to either get assistance or, or learn to edit better because, you know, the books will flow when they just speak. But then, you know, I tell some of the parents that I see, they need, you know, the kindergartner needs a, to hire a secretary to do its editing. Right, uh, right. And that's, you know, I had somebody, um, my daughter is a very good writer. Um, and she said, but, you know, I just don't always get all these things right. And he goes, you know, if you were writing professionally, they would have an editor for you. So you don't that's have to right. worry about those things. That's right. Um, but one of the things I encourage schools to do also is to separate those skills out. Those are very different skills. One skill is producing content. The other skill is mechanical and it's editing. So get the content first, then worry about the mechanics. The mechanics will come. There's lots of tools out there. There's Grammarly. There's lots of tools that can help with the mechanics. Being able to create content is where the writing is. You know, that's a, a really great point. And listening to you, Roxanne, I hear your engineering mind really <laughs> go through it and take these pieces apart like an engineer to be able to put it back together so it can run. Right, exactly. I mean, that's, you always want to find the simplest and that's the human factors part, the simplest and easiest way to make things work. Yes, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your meetup group and, and how you can really help Parents, again, I uh, mentioned your website again and the meetup and tell us more about that. Okay, the, the website is learningdifferencesworld.com. That's my website. And the meetup is Specialized Support for Parents, Denver Metro Specialized Support for Parents. And we meet once a, once a month, starting from um, September through May. We have found nobody wants to meet in August. And so I bring in speakers that like I brought in people from Dr. Hellerstein's business um, to talk on vision processing. And I've brought speakers in to speak on the Read Act, the Read Plan and the Read Act. Um, so we have different speakers all year and you can participate either well, next year, we're hoping everybody's well enough that we can participate in person as well as you can participate um, via Zoom. So you don't have to worry if you can't drive to our to the place. And um, actually, we're meeting at Accelerated Schools, which is in Denver on Cook Street. So Cook and Evans. So the way the format works is we this, we meet, we introduce ourselves and the speaker um, talks for 30 to 45 minutes. And then we have time for um, questions and answers. And then we have 
um, hot topics, um, which is um, anything that's bothering you in school, IEPs, or how to implement maybe what the speaker talked about. And then if we have time, we do networking. So that's what we do once a month. Um, I don't have my speaker line up for next year. I'll be working on that in July. Um, so if you know any speakers, you can send them my way. That's always good to have. I know that I'm going to have somebody from Linda Mood Bell to talk on teaching math and how to, how to teach how to do math. So I know they're going to come this year. Well, what a great, great res a free resource for parents to not only hear from speakers they may not even know exists. It's like you don't know what you don't know. Right. That the networking to talk to other parents as to what's been helpful, what hasn't. Um, what a great resource. Um, know that all of these links will be on the show notes of the podcast, so so uh, our listeners can get to them. You also mentioned something about a free consultation. Yes, your I, I do do free consultations. So that is an hour long and I do them now over Zoom. And I ask for um, your last evaluation and the last IEP at minimum. If there's any other documents you think I need to read because like you're in a fight with the school or whatever, you send those along and I look at those ahead of time. And then we have an, 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 a conversation about what I can do, what I can't do, um, what it would cost, um, how, you know, how, and I also, I always try to give things that you can do without me. So this is what you could do to start the process off. Or I will look and I will also look at it and go, yeah, you really need some support because your evaluation is saying one thing and the IEP is saying something different. So again, what a, a great resource. And it just touches my heart how you, you truly change the lives, not only of the kiddos, but the parents who are struggling to try to give the support and find, find what the kids need. And and Thanks. boy, do you fill in a big niche there. So Thanks. And that's, that's why I went into this was really from a parent's perspective. I, I said, we sued Jefferson County and I just got reminded the other day that only two cases have won, well, three in Jefferson County, but two made significant impact out of those three. My case is the only one that won at all levels. And, um, so it was a true win and it's, in 30 years, it's the only three cases. Wow. So not too many parents win and all the money comes out of your pocket. So um, it's a it's a big risk to take. And so so that's I really don't want parents to have to do that if they don't can't don't have to. Agreed. Agreed. Was there anything else you'd like to share before you wrap up today's podcast? Well, that's a really good question. I I'm going to be making some changes to my website and my business, what that's going to look like. I don't know in terms of not what I'm providing, but um, I'm either going to do classes in person this year, um, not in person, but on the web, or I will be setting up classes you can take at your own leisure, virtual. So I haven't quite decided that. So I would say keep track on my website. And if you want to register for my newsletter, I do send out newsletters also during the year from August through May, um, usually June too. Um, 
And that has different events that are happening around the area as well as what Learning Differences World is doing. And you can join that through my website or send me an email. And I think Lynn has my email address. Um, it's Roxanne at learningdifferencesworld.com. And, um, and then I can add you to my mailing list and you can get that kind of information. Like I'm going to have Lynn's um, podcast on there in, in um, August. So um, if you want to get more information about what's happening across the area and who's having classes, or sometimes I put national classes that are being held, then um, please, please join my, my um, newsletter. Well, Roxanne, thank you, thank you, thank you. I am so inspired with your work and, and uh, my gratitude for you sharing such words of wisdom. I think the listeners can tell what they get if they're considering hiring an advocate like you, because you have just opened up, opened up all your toolbox and already started sharing things that are going to be so helpful for so many of our parents and their kids. Thank so, you, Dr. Hellerstein. It's been a pleasure to have you. And, and thanks to everybody for joining us today. Remember that your vision doesn't define you, but you define your vision. Expand your vision and see with clarity gain courage and confidence. And with that, I'll say goodbye for now. And thanks again, Roxanne. Thanks. Thank you for joining us today on Vision Beyond Sight. Join Dr. Lynn Hellerstein each week to help you find clarity in your functional vision and expand the power of your seeing brain to gain courage, confidence, and success in your life. Remember, your vision does not define you. You define your vision. For more information and find additional podcasts, visit lynnhellerstein.com. See you next time on Vision Beyond Sight.